If you have your Bibles, like Pastor Jeff said, please open up to Matthew chapter 16. The message is titled, Jesus the Christ and His Cross. And what I hope that we'll see from the text this morning is that any teaching, be it from Pharisees or foreigners, that denies the historicity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, or the cross of Jesus is both empty and satanic. And today, we must believe the true gospel. And the true gospel believes that the events are real history. True gospel submits to Jesus' ultimate authority. The true gospel worships Jesus as God. And the true gospel embraces the cross of Jesus. I'm curious in here, and, and you can raise your hand or you can just shout it out, but who knows who is on the picture of a $100 bill? Who's on the picture, the front of a $100 bill? Benjamin Franklin, exactly right. Hey, way to go. Okay, so um, those of you who don't know it, that may be because, you know, you're like me and you don't carry cash anymore. Maybe because you've never seen a $100 bill. I don't know, but that's, that's all good. Um, but I want us to imagine for a minute that each of us just got hired at a bank and we were going to be tellers. Now, one of your jobs, it's very important as a teller, is to be able to tell the difference between a real dollar bill, in this case we'll, we'll say a hundred dollar bill, and a fake one, okay? Because if somebody came with a bunch of fake hundred dollar bills and they exchanged it to establish an account with you, they'd be giving you essentially something that didn't cost them nothing and getting credit with your bank as if they had given you a lot of money. So how do you tell the difference between a real hundred dollar bill and a, a fake? Here are a few things I learned, and, and you know, you can see some of these on a $1 bill, but some of them are only for once you get to the $100 bill denomination. Uh, but did you know, for instance, that the feel of the paper, it's a special paper they use. That's one of the first ways a teller who's been handling money for years oftentimes doesn't need anything else. They can just tell, wait a minute, that paper feels different. I know that that's a fake Another way they can spot a fake is uh, the little bell in the bottom right-hand corner actually has liquid ink in it. So if you hold it to the side for a while, you can tell that the ink drains a little bit on the tiny bell. So if, you, if somebody pays you uh, in a $100 bill, just hold it for a while. Make sure that that, that little bell drains. Also, the $100 bill has a watermark on it, and that's very difficult to forge. The other thing, I didn't know this, but if you take your fingernail and you run it on a $100 bill, you'll feel little ridges. The, the printing is actually raised up, whereas a fake, oftentimes they've not been able to recreate those ridges. So if you don't encounter any resistance as you run your fingernail over it, you've probably got a fake as not a real $100 bill. And the last one, and I, I, I thought this was so cool, um, but if you take out a magnifying glass and you look at Benjamin Franklin's collar, there's super tiny text on his collar. 
uh, that, that you can see there. And that's on a real $100 bill. If there's nothing written on his collar, you probably got scammed and you need to go get yourself a real $100 bill. But on the real one, there's real words on his collar. Uh, what does it say? Uh, you'll have to look into one. Get out your, your magnifying glass and get a, a $100 bill. See if you can find that text. Well, that's, you know, kind of funny. I don't know, just out of curious, anybody in here ever been a, a teller and actually handled money before? Okay, was any of that true? I mean, okay, yeah, yeah. So ask Miss Susan for that. I, I had a little bit of cash I worked at Best Buy. I never spotted a fake, so if somebody gave me fake money, well, they got away with it. But to ask Miss Susan for more of that, if uh, maybe she knows what's on Ben Franklin's collar. But now I want you to suppose that we're all Christians and that we have a similar job, but we want to know for sure how to spot the true gospel from the false gospels. You see, don't you want to know for sure as a Christian that you have trusted in the right good news so that you can know for sure you are in Christ. You're going to be with Jesus forever when you die. I mean, as, as much of a, a gut uh, sinking feeling you'd have if you realize that somebody scammed you out of money, it would be so much worse to stand before Jesus one day and think, I'm good, when in fact, you're not. And that's exactly what Jesus helps us see today. He is going to train us to be those who understand the true gospel. Okay, and there's, there's four things. I'm going to talk about these a good bit today. But first, the true gospel believes the events are real history. Second, the true gospel submits to Jesus as Lord. Third, the true gospel worships Jesus as God. And fourth, the true gospel embraces Jesus on the cross. Okay? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word, if you're able, as we read, I'm going to pick up a little bit from where Pastor Jeff was last week to set the stage. So we're starting actually in Matthew 15, verse 29. God's word says this. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Now watch this. Every time we see Jesus so compassion, it's not just some pity and he moves on. This is, means he's about to do something. So let's watch. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowds to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending the crowds away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, It will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. I love this. Uh, one of the commentators I read said, You know, could have been a lot of things, but as men, when we're really hungry, it almost doesn't matter anything else that Jesus said. That's, they could not get it out of their minds. That, well, 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 we didn't bring any bread. It's like their stomachs had taken over. So they were just hungry, couldn't grab a Snickers. But Jesus, verse 8, aware of this said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that just means son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one Yet, that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribe and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, 
For you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of man, but on the things, excuse me, not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And shall a man and what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come and with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each according to what he has done. Truly I say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father God, your word is so incredible, Jesus. Uh, forgive us, God, I just ask at the beginning of this for taking your word lightly. Some of us just don't, don't get into your word enough. And some of us, it, it becomes like me, such a hasty thing sometimes. We, we don't dwell with you long enough to feel the goodness and the weight of what we're reading God, use this time to help us feel the weight of these words. There is joy here. There is immense truth here. There is privilege at having heard your word. There is vital life, Jesus, in these words. And so I ask that you give us the very heart of Christ this morning. Give us, please, your Holy Spirit to hear these words as you intend them to be heard and felt. Jesus, you are the Son of the living God. And I pray that all of us would leave professing that this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, first, at the end of Matthew 15, the historicity of the true gospel. Look at verse 38. It said there that those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Two weeks ago, we were with Jesus in a remote place on the Sea of Galilee. He had teached and he had preached and, and he had healed many. And then, moved by compassion, he had miraculously fed 5,000 men besides women and children from only five loaves of bread and a few fish. Today, we were with Jesus again in a remote place by the Sea of Galilee. He had again compassion on the crowds. He again had preached to them. He had healed many. And this time he miraculously fed 4,000 men from only a few loaves of bread and some fish. These two events sound really similar, do they not? In fact, so similar do they sound that some have charged Matthew and other gospel writers with perhaps just a little bit of stretching the truth. You know, it, it, it's like um, the, the person who goes and catches a fish and the first friend he tells the fish is this big, but by the time he's told the story a few times, it's like a six foot long bass that you couldn't even fit in the boat. Uh, some people have charged Matthew with stretching the truth a little too much here, a, a bit of embellishment going on for dramatic effect. I'm here to tell you on the authority of the Bible that that is nonsense. 
Here are the reasons that these two events actually happened as recorded. First, the events have differences that are key to distinguishing them so that they cannot be the same event embellished for rhetorical effect. For instance, the amount of time Jesus had been with the crowds differed. In the first occurrence, he was with them for one day and the second for three days. The number of people fed differed, right? The first time Jesus fed 5,000 men besides women and children. The second time, 4,000 men besides women and children. The number of loaves of bread available to Jesus differed from five loaves to seven. And the number of pieces picked up afterwards were different. The first time it was 12 baskets full. The second time, seven. These details matter. If you ask a detective or somebody who questions people to establish valid testimony, oftentimes what they're looking for in someone who's making up a testimony is that they can't keep their details straight. And in this case, the details are different because they're different instances. If he was trying to embellish, don't you think he'd at least have gotten his facts straight? No, these are different instances. Second, look at the end. If we were to go back to Matthew 14, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus goes away by himself to pray. And then remember, he comes to the disciples in the boat by walking on top of water. That does not happen at the end of Matthew 15. Instead, next, we see Jesus sends them away, and he goes on to a region called Magadon in the boat with the disciples, totally different endings because they're totally different events. And then third, and this is the most convincing, look at Matthew 16 and, and go down with me in verses 9 and 10. There in your Bible, Jesus is the one who says these were separate events that both occurred. In verse 9, Jesus says, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So if Matthew just kind of made this up, then he's also putting a lie on the lips of Jesus, at which point I would say we probably shouldn't trust anything that Matthew said, and that is exactly not what we should do. No, the most plausible explanation is that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded the real events that really occurred because Jesus really is who the Bible claims he is. And that's the first thing we have to catch about the gospel. It's not just good news from fairy tales or from, from nice sounding stories. No, 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 no. The true gospel of Jesus affirms the historicity. That means the events really happened. These really occurred. These aren't just things we put into a, a children's story like um, Hansel and Gretel to kind of convince them to be better people when they grow up. No, we believe that there was some real bread that Jesus really handled, that he really blessed, that he really broke, that he really gave to his disciples who had the privilege of giving it to thousands of people. I mean, the privilege of seeing the miracle happen in your hands, uh, this 
actually occurred. And Jesus made sure that the crowds knew it. You ever wonder why it is that Jesus had them all sit down twice? It's so they could see it. There were thousands of witnesses who knew a miracle had to occur because they saw this one guy hand out just a few loaves and then they kept eating and eating and eating like the golden corral until they were full. I mean, if this was made up, you'd have had thousands of people who could say, "Uh uh-uh, I was there. That's not how that went down. But they didn't because it really occurred. Hey, Here is one of the first ways you can spot a false gospel from a false teacher. And it's because you're going to hear something like the Bible contains wonderful stories that can help you in your walk. But but there won't be a commitment in the teaching that these events actually occurred. There'll be some backpedaling or some embarrassment. Like, well, 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 maybe what Jesus did is he got the people to share what they already had. Well, well no, that, that's not a miracle. That's not going to um, move me to place my faith in him as the God he claims to be. Matthew says that there was a miracle that took place and thousands were fed from seven loaves. And that's what... I believe. So the true gospel says these events actually happened. And if you're hearing, whether it's a a podcast or a preacher on the radio or reading a book that says something like, these are nice events, even if they didn't occur how the Bible says they did, let me encourage you to stop reading that, stop listening to that, put that away. That's not going to bless you. That's, That's a false gospel. The Bible actually occurred as it claims to have occurred. Next, we're going to see that the true gospel affirms the authority of Jesus. And that authority is absolute. Verses 1 to 12 in chapter 16, I call the authority of the true gospel. And the key verses in verse 4 where Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So Jesus dismisses the crowds and goes with the disciples to a region known as Magadan. Now, um, if you ask me, well, where is that? I don't exactly know. And and as I've read, nobody's quite sure exactly where it is. And if we referenced Mark, he's not a whole lot of help. He calls it a place called Dalmanutha. It may be that Magadan was another name for a place called Magdala, which would be where Mary Magdalene was from on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's about what we've got. Think of how some of us call it Micklers, some of us call it Michaelers. So, may, maybe something like that's going on. I don't know. But it's another town on the Sea of Galilee. And again, these Pharisees and Sadducees show up. And, and man, they, they are out to get some information from Jesus. And remember, as we saw when they came to question John the Baptist, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not buddies, right? They didn't get along. In, the ter- in terms of kind of first century Palestinian religious politics, 
The Pharisees were like the conservative Republicans, and the Sadducees were like the liberal Democrats. They butted heads. You didn't find them cooperating, yet here they are cooperating, uh, both signing off on a bill, bipartisan support against Jesus. And they have this simple question that it seems innocent at first, right? They come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And, and, you know, if we're not reading the text carefully, it can seem like, well, why was Jesus so harsh on these guys? They just, they, they came, it seems like they kind of wanted to believe in him. If you'll just show us a sign. But that's, that's not quite what was going on. And in fact, we've heard them do this before. The Pharisees earlier in Matthew 12, 38 said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And, and what's happening here when they ask for this sign, there's hints in the text that this isn't like a little child coming to a parent asking for something humbly. This is perhaps like the kind of interrogation that goes on in a courtroom where, you know, somebody is made under oath to answer any question and they're grilled because that attorney or that lawyer is trying to catch them saying something to damage their testimony. In verse 1 of Matthew 16, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew tells us that they came to test Jesus. That is, the Pharisees and Sadducees thought of themselves as the teachers, and Jesus was their pupil, and they were giving him an exam like a pop quiz, and it was their job to grade Jesus. And the course hoped to find evidence to say, ah, there, he failed. Look, everybody, Jesus is not the teacher he claims to be. This word, to put to the test, showed up in another place in the gospel, way back in Matthew chapter 4, where it says there that Satan came to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. The same Greek word for tempt is the word here when the Pharisees came to put Jesus to the test. And if you remember, at that time, Jesus said to Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so that's why Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and Sadducees so sharply. He refuses to give them any sign and calls their request evil. In verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. It's the exact same thing Satan did. Hey, Jesus, come on, you know, uh, jump off this temple here, and then everybody will see for sure that you're the Son of God. Everybody will believe in you. And Jesus, nah, Satan, I ain't falling for that. God is in charge, not you, and I am not going to put him to the test. It's the same thing. Hey, hey Jesus, we, we believe in you if you'll do exactly what we say when we say it, and we want to see a sign from you right now. Come on. Come on, Jesus. You know, that is not how it works. It's an evil thing to assume that you have authority over Jesus to tell him what to do. I have no right to grade Jesus's test. He's the one who tests my heart. He's the Lord. I am not. And so the true gospel affirms the authority of Jesus. 
It was not the Pharisees and Sadducees' job to stand in authority over Jesus, deciding whether or not Jesus passed their test. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. I bow the knee to him. He has all the authority. I am just grateful to be alive underneath his will to allow me to exist. So catch this. The true gospel has to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. False gospels will say a few things. Um, in, in a literal sense, you might hear sometime, well, to become a Christian, all you have to do is pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior. And in some way down the line, maybe you'll ask him to also be the Lord of your life. Hey, be very careful there because if he is Lord, I don't get to pick and choose when I want to receive him as Lord. It's a package deal. Either I receive him as the Lord that he is or I've told him no. In other words, I have to submit to him as Lord to receive salvation. Practically, there are those who want to know that they're not going to hell, but they don't want to have to actually surrender their life to Jesus. And I'm sorry, that's how it works. There has to be a submission to him as Lord to receive the salvation he offers. There's no way to say that I have come to him for salvation and not submitted to him as the Lord that he is. I must believe that he is the Lord he claims to be in order to receive salvation. One false gospel I heard kind of put it this way. Prayer is drawing a circle on the ground and telling God you won't leave until he gives you what you ask for. Hey, that's not prayer. That is making demands of almighty God, putting myself in authority over God. That's not how prayer works. I come like a soldier humbly asking for orders. And when I get them, I say, yes, sir. And I go and I obey what my master has told me to do. We are under Jesus's authority. For instance, we find out after he rises from the dead that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And he commands us what to do. Jesus makes clear that he is speaking with the very authority of God in the gospel of John when he says, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus speaks on the authority authority of God. In the Psalms, the second Psalm says this, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Twice Jesus warned the disciples about the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees because this spreads so quickly. It's so dangerous. Watch out and be on your guard. I, Christian, I got to tell you, this is perhaps one of the most pervasive fa false gospels today because we love being in charge. We love acting as if it's my life. And I get to tell Jesus what to do. We love acting as if um, I'm in the driver's seat and Jesus is my co-pilot. He's kind of along for the ride to bless my life, make me feel a little better and get through it feeling good about myself. And that is a false gospel. I must come to him as Lord. He's in charge. He's the master. He's the ruler. I bow. I submit. I follow 
That is a big distinction between the true and false gospel. So we've said at this point, the biblical gospel affirms the historicity of the true events and the authority of Jesus. Next, we're going to see that the true gospel proclaims that Jesus is God. Verses 13 to 20, I'm calling the deity of Jesus. And the key verse is verse 16 where Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you look with me in verse 13, you see that they have moved on from Magadan to Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north from the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is an odd place. Last week, we were with Jesus when he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon on the coast. This is inland. The old name for the city was Peneus or Penion. Now, it had been renamed Caesarea Philippi. And this is a very pagan city. There's been a lot of archaeology done there. And there was this famous cave and statue to the Greek god Pan there. And any kind of immoral worship that you can imagine, it probably went on some there. Some say it's not entirely clear, but it may be that the cave went down uh, to the depths of the earth and, and where there used to be an ancient spring, it was known as the gateway to the underworld. Maybe not. Uh, there's debates on that, but it is very clear that this was a pagan place full of people worshiping, whether they knew it or not, Satan. And this is where Jesus decided to ask his followers, who do people say that I am? And if you look at their responses in the text, uh, Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, uh, you know, John the Baptist, another prophet. We remember when King Herod Antipas was so scared that he thought that Jesus was the ghost of John the Baptist come back. All of these responses have something in common. They're not wholesale angry denials of Jesus like, Jesus is the worst person ever. I'd never listen to him. He's awful. No, they're not, they're not that heavy. But there's something missing there. They're all nice in their responses to Jesus. Like Jesus is a good, godly teacher or prophet or someone who speaks for God. But there's something missing. And so Jesus puts it to the disciples. But who do you say that I am. And I want to pause you for a second. This is the most important question for us to answer ever. Who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Look at how Peter responds. These are glorious words. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here is a public profession that Jesus is the anointed king promised in David's line forever and that simultaneously he is the son of God, co-equal with God the Father. What this tells me is I can't, well, well, well hang on, let's pause for a second here because I've heard this before. Um, there are some who might knock on your door one day and say, well, when Jesus claimed to be God's son, he wasn't claiming to be God. Uh, if you've ever heard that before, that's a lie, and, and here's why. When 
Peter is professing that Jesus is the son of the living God, clearly he is implying that he's co-equal with God the Father and deserves to be worshipped. That's why he worshipped him a few chapters earlier. And it is shown in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews understood to claim to be the Son of God was to claim equality with God the Father. Look in your Bibles at John, chapter 5, verse 18. Right after Jesus claims to be God's Son, it says this, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, when Peter said, you are the son of the living God, Peter is saying, you are God and nothing less. Jesus says that such a profession of faith is evidence that Peter's heart is blessed by God the Father What a great reminder that if you're a Christian today, God has sent the Holy Spirit into your heart to bless you. You didn't just kind of stumble into becoming a Christian or or choose it one day, you know, like we choose our favorite cereal. Uh, I'll have peanut butter Captain Crunch instead of, you know, Cheerios today. That's not how we stumble into becoming a Christian. What happens is God is so gracious to us that he sends the Holy Spirit to wake our hearts up and give us the gift of faith. Look at what it said there. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said this is how it works back in Matthew 11. He said, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That was Matthew 11, verse 27. This is great news, Christians, for why we pray for our friends who aren't Christians and family members. We're not just praying, hoping that circumstances will work out. We're praying, asking God to change hearts, and he can do that. He can actually change hearts to where one day your lost friend or family member wakes up and they say, wow, I need Jesus. He is the Savior I need, and that's exactly what we're praying for when we pray for the lost. Now, Jesus pronounces Peter blessed because he's made this true profession. And then he says some words that I, I got to be honest, they've, well, they've confused me before. Look in verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'm just curious, um, Has anybody been a little confused by those words before? Just a little bit? Okay, the rest of you Bible scholars, y'all are amazing. Go ask like that side of the church because they know what it means. For some of you who are confused like me, um, I I had to look into this a little bit. The Roman Catholic Church has taught that this shows the beginning of the papacy or when the, the first pope was established in Peter and that going down from Peter popes were granted an authority to declare who is and who is not saved and that that was given to them by Jesus and it it goes so far to the by the time we get to the reformation the papal lineage is declared to be infallible what the pope says goes only the pope has ultimate authority to administer sacraments who confer grace on people regardless of what they believe only the pope 
can make someone truly saved or not saved. Now, I do not think that that's what Jesus is teaching here. But on the flip side, Protestants have often interpreted this to say, well, what Jesus meant was that Peter, like all Christians, would be entrusted with the gospel, and that when you teach or share the gospel with somebody, if they trust Jesus, they'll be saved. And I affirm that that's true. When you share the gospel with someone and someone places their faith in Jesus alone for salvation, that's how a person is saved. It's always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I think there's a little more going on here when Jesus promises to give Peter the keys to the kingdom. I don't think Jesus is establishing Peter in some kind of papal lineage that can pronounce people saved apart from the gospel. But I do think Jesus is hinting that starting with Peter and continuing with the true church of Jesus Christ, we have the authority and responsibility underneath Jesus not only to preach the true gospel, but to affirm the evidence of the gospel in Christians' lives. Here's what I mean. Part of the reason we all need to be part of the church of Jesus is so that we can have what Jesus wants for each one of us. That is to be part of a group of believers that can say, I see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. I see the evidence in you of the kind of change that is consistent with a Christian someone who's following Jesus. I see evidence that you really believe what you claim to believe. How much help is it to you to know that there are other believers in Jesus who are praying for you, who are helping you, and who see evidence that you really are a Christian? That's part of the blessing of being part of a local church. In fact, John will go so far as to say that one of the marks of truly being saved is the love we show to fellow Christians in a local church. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I share all this because it's super common today to meet folks who'll say something like this. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus, but I don't like to go to church. I just, it's not for me. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just not a church guy. And I, I'll ask them sometimes, you know, if I've developed a relationship and they're willing to listen. Hey, who do you think Jesus died for? And there's a few right responses to that. You know, uh, one right response is the world. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16, praise God. Another might be, um, well, the lost. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, 10, praise God. Someone who's being especially humble might say, well, Christ died for me. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8, praise God. But do you know one of the right responses to who Jesus died for is the church. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 says that Christ loved and died for the church. 
And so to say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't want anything to do with the church is an oxymoron. Are we perfect? Not even close. Are we all works in progress? Absolutely. Do we need each other? Amen. Yes, we do. Why do we need each other? Because when the Holy Spirit comes in and changes my heart, part of what he does is he moves me to show that I love Jesus by loving my brothers and sisters really in the church. And as we love one another, and as we see that evidence, it's as if we get to affirm on earth what has happened for real in heaven, where we can say to one another, I see the evidence that Jesus has touched your life. That's why we need one another in the church, to feel saved. So when we get to the, what is a true gospel from the false gospel, we see that the true gospel has to affirm certain content. If someone comes and they say to you, well, I want to be a Christian, how do I do that? One of the most crucial things they have to affirm is not that just Jesus was a good teacher or a good prophet, not just that he was a great man or like God or one of the gods or someone who lived a really good life and was made into a God, but that Jesus is the one and only son of the living God. Hey, a true gospel affirms Jesus is God. A false gospel will say that he is merely like God. So the true gospel affirms the events really happened, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, and finally, the true gospel embraces the cross of Jesus. Verses 21 to 28, I call the cross of Jesus, and the key verse is there in verse 21, where it says in the text, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Peter had just been blessed, publicly praised by Jesus for professing his faith. And then Jesus turns around and says, hey, so y'all know, I'm heading to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And that does not sit well with Peter, right? He pulls Jesus aside and he's like, hey, Jesus, come here a minute. Come on, come on, come on. I mean, Jesus, that, that, that just can't be. I'm not going to let that happen. I've got a sword. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to let you die. And, and does Jesus say something sweet like, oh, Peter, that's so kind of you. I'm so glad you're looking out for me. I, I really was helpless until you, Peter, stepped in. No, that's not at all what Jesus says. In fact, just as Peter's earlier words were gifts from heaven, apparently when, Jesus, or when Peter tries to talk Jesus out of going to the cross, those are words from hell. Peter thinks he's doing something nice, and Jesus turns around and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter's words smelled a lot like the sulfur Jesus had smelled before when he was in the wilderness. Remember back in Matthew 4, Satan had tried to get Jesus to do a few things, and the last thing he tried to get Jesus to do was to worship him. And then Satan promised to give him all authority on, on the earth. Like, here are all the kingdoms, they'll be yours. And what did Jesus say at that point? He said to him, be 
gone, Satan. And what do we hear Jesus saying here? Get behind me, Satan. You see, Satan was offering Jesus the authority without the cross. And Peter hears Jesus. He proclaims him to be the king in David's line. And he wants Jesus to have that authority. But he certainly doesn't want Jesus to have the cross. These attempts to talk the Son of God into the authority without the cross are satanic. And in fact, today, the whole passage is almost a repeat of Matthew 4. The first temptation that Jesus faced was to turn the stones into bread. And when the disciples are in the boat, they are so hungry and so worried about bread that they don't even listen to Jesus. And so they're tempted to trust in their own devices to get bread rather than listen to God. And then second, Jesus was tempted by Satan to force God to the test and jumping off of the temple. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and put Jesus to the test. And then third, Satan tries to lure Jesus away from the cross by offering him the authority without the cross. And here we hear Peter doing the same thing, trying to encourage Jesus to omit the cross. It's a repeat where Satan is tempting Jesus again. And all of this is because the cross of Jesus is not optional. The cross of Jesus is not a minor note in the song of the gospel. It's not merely Jesus leaving us a good example of a sacrificial prophet. It's not merely something that is a sad tragedy that ruined Jesus' otherwise excellent life. It's not an accident in the teacher's plans. The cross is not anything less than the very reason Jesus came. And it's absolutely crucial for us. That's why the biggest point is to hear that the true gospel embraces the cross. All of us have really sinned against a real God who's really holy and we really deserve his real wrath that will really last forever unless someone steps in and takes that wrath for us. And that's what Jesus did on this cross. He endured the very wrath of God for you and for me so that I wouldn't have to, so that you wouldn't have to. That's how much he loves us. Remember earlier where Jesus said the Pharisees and Sadducees wouldn't get any sign except the sign of Jonah? Earlier, he told us what he meant. This was in Matthew 12, verses 40 to 41. Jesus said there, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Kids, you remember Jonah the prophet? He was told to go to Nineveh. And did he go to Nineveh at first? No, he tried to sail in the opposite direction. And did, did he make it? Did he get away from God? No, he was by a whale. Yeah, remember he tried to get away and there was a big storm and they ended up throwing Jonah into the water and a big fish went and swallowed Jonah. 
And he lived inside that fish's belly. I bet it stank really bad in there. My wife and I had salmon last night. It was delicious. But it was the type where the skin was still on it. And oh, that skin smelled so bad. But the fish tasted great. So uh, I don't know what it smelled like in the belly of a fish. But inside that belly for three days, Jonah finally came to his senses, repented. And then he got blah, spat out on the land. And he went and he preached. And the people of Nineveh repented. What is this about? Well, it's a comparison because you see, while Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, Jesus will be in the belly of the earth. He'll be in a tomb after he's crucified. And then as Jonah was spat out as if he's alive again, Jesus will really come back to life. And as people repented when they saw Jonah out from the belly of fish, people will repent and believe in Jesus when they see him risen from the dead. That's the sign. So don't think that Jesus was just being mean to the Pharisees. He's promising that he loves us so much. He's going to come back from the dead. And we'll find in the book of Acts that some of these same very Pharisees repent and believe in Jesus finally, because they cannot deny that the man they crucified came back from the dead. What do we do with all this? What, what, what are we supposed to do with all this? Jesus tells us what to do. Look at verse 24. I love this. The Bible is so wonderful. Jesus builds all this up and he says, okay, if you've been listening, here's what you need. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. We have said today that the true gospel believes the events are real history. The true gospel submits to Jesus' authority. The true gospel worships Jesus as God. And the true gospel embraces the cross. Now we have what to do. To deny yourself is to repent. All of us, me included, start this life with a throne in our hearts and me on it. Jared, right here, I'm in charge. And so to deny myself is to repent and turn away from the sinful position of me being in charge of my life. How about at the end there where Jesus says, follow me? Well, that means I've got to obey Jesus, which implies submitting to him as Lord. Right? You are accepting this invitation to follow Jesus as the Lord of your life. But what does it mean to take up my cross. I've often heard that taking up your cross means to die to yourself daily. And, and I will say to die to yourself daily is a picture of ongoing repentance. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus meant here. In Jesus's life, we're going to see him in a few weeks take up his cross. But it's not going to be when Jesus is hanging on the cross, nailed to it and dying. Taking up his cross is what he does when he carries his cross on the way to Golgotha. And here's why this matters. Taking up your cross is not so much a, another way of Jesus saying you need to die to yourself daily. That's repentance. That's, that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Taking up your cross is a way of saying You've got to rely on Jesus enough that you're willing to die for him. You've got to rely on Jesus enough 
that you can face death with the hope of heaven because of who Jesus is. It's to trust Jesus so fully as your Savior in his death for you on the cross that you're willing to live in such a way that you're more likely to be killed for your faith. To take up your cross is to live in such a way by faith that you're willing to die. This morning, we have seen that a true Christian embraces the true gospel by believing that Jesus truly came, truly lived, truly died, and truly rose. The true Christian believes that Jesus is both Lord and God. And the true Christian trusts Jesus to save him because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. The true Christian is so convinced that Jesus will return and that his hope is in heaven, that he's willing to suffer and die for Jesus. That's why Jesus ends talking about whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's an explanation of what it looks like to take up your cross. Hey, the son of man is really coming with his angels. It will really be glorious. And you really will have a home in heaven if you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior. Now, the last verse there, verse 28, says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. And some of you may have hoped that we would spend a while talking about that today, but I, I'm not going to do it all for you. Read your Bibles and go to uh, Bible study next week, and maybe you'll talk about that. So we're just going to put that on the back burner. Teachers, you get to cover that next week. Here's what I want to do as we close. I've held out to you today that in order to be a Christian, to know that you're really saved, you've got to trust in Jesus and the true gospel. And you need to turn away from the false gospels. There are a lot of false gospels today. And anybody who has stood in a pulpit like this and preached, it weighs heavy on me. It weighs heavy on us. Because I don't want someone to come and listen to me preach and leave thinking they're right with God when they're not. So I promise the, the impetus to preach this way is not because I don't care about you or, or I don't love you. No, 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 no. I, I have this burden that I want you to understand what it means to really be saved because I want to spend eternity with you. I want us to be in heaven together. I want us to be singing those songs together and having a ball with Jesus together, seeing him face to face. And so here are a few false gospels I just want to warn you about as we prepare to close. Some false gospels will deny that the events of the Bible happened. You know, some are going to claim, oh, Jesus didn't really feed them 5,000. He just got them to share what they already had. Hey, hey, hey. The Bible is full of miraculous things. And if you can't believe that, you're missing it. The true gospel is filled with real miracles Jesus performed. Some are going to deny the lordship of Jesus, making it optional, or living as if God owes them a sign before they'll believe. Yeah, I'll believe in Jesus someday if he shows me something undeniable, or I've trusted in Jesus as Savior. Maybe someday I'll submit to him as Lord. That's a false gospel. You have to believe in Jesus as the Lord that he is. 
Some are going to deny that Jesus is the one true God, maybe a great teacher, a great prophet, a great voice for God, like God, but not the one true God. Those are false gospels. Some will deny the importance of Jesus' church. I can love Jesus, but not his church. But Jesus said he loved and died for the church. To claim to love Jesus, but not our brothers in Christ, especially in the local church, is a false gospel. Some will deny or downplay the cross. I actually heard this. It's child abuse to say that the father wanted his son to, not, to die. Or it's just an example of self-sacrifice. Or it was a tragedy that Jesus died so young. To claim that the cross of Jesus was anything other than absolutely necessary for my salvation is a false gospel. Christian, are you carrying your cross? Are you living your life to where it's so obvious that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? That as things get harder in this country on Christians, you are more likely to die because of your faith in Jesus. That's what you're called to. And believe me, that's why I need some other Christians praying for me and helping me along the way. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, it's not this high hill you have to climb. It's not all of these things you must do in order for Jesus to look at you and say, finally, you're good enough, come on in. To become a Christian is to admit your sin to ask Jesus to forgive you on the basis that you believe he died on the cross for your sins and to commit to follow him as the Lord of your life. We're going to pray here in just a minute and you'll have an opportunity to respond. But I wanted to read you a little something from a book by Randy Alcorn called In Light of Eternity. You're going to hear a letter here to a man named Derlin. Derlin was convicted and was an inmate on death row. Derlin had a Christian at Randy Alcorn's church who started writing him letters, sharing the gospel with him. And she wrote to Derlin faithfully for 15 years. And for a while, Derlin said, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't need that. That's just a crutch. I don't got to pay attention to those letters. But year after year, those letters came, and finally, Derlin gave his life to Jesus. He trusted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Derlin's day for going and, and getting the punishment that his crimes on earth merited came close. He was going to be killed. And Randy Alcorn found out about what happened and wrote him a letter. And I just want to read you a little bit. This is a letter to a man who became a Christian while he was on death row who's about to be killed. Randy said to him, no matter what sins we've committed, Derlin, I know that if we both repented and accepted Christ's gift of eternal life, we are brothers and we will see each other again on the other side. I look forward to meeting you there. I have a request for you. My mother, a devoted follower of Christ, died 16 years ago. My father was very hostile to the gospel. 
After years of saying no to God, he accepted Christ as his Savior five years ago at the age of 84. Dad died in February at age 89, and my family and I were with him when he made the exodus from this world to the next. In fact, Dad's birthday, his 90th, would be November 19th. So Derlin, since you're scheduled to die on that day, I'd like to ask you to give my mom and dad a hug for me and say happy birthday to my dad. I suspect they're seeing a lot of what's going on here, but please tell them I love them and can't wait to see them again. And when you talk with our Lord, even though he knows this and everything else, tell him how much I love him and how much I look forward to seeing him face to face. Tell him that myself, or excuse me, I'll tell him myself, but if you wouldn't mind passing on that message... I appreciate it. Your friend, Randy Alcorn. Christian, if you trust Jesus, no matter what you go through, you're going to wake up and you're going to see him. It's going to be okay. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die. And I pray that you'd help us to understand how necessary that was because of our sin. I pray, Jesus, that you'd help me not to wander away from you, but to follow you. And I pray that you'd give me the faith in you and in the hope of living with you forever that I'd be willing to carry my cross. I pray that there'd be some here this morning who'd be moved like the woman who would write to Derlin faithfully. May we be the kind of Christians who love with a persevering love, even when people initially don't want to hear it. I pray, Jesus, that you make this church family at Redemption Church the kind of church that we help each other on our walks, that we can affirm one another and and hold one another accountable and help one another feel saved. Uh, Jesus, I pray that if there's someone here right now, please, Jesus, that doesn't yet know you as the Lord and Savior that you are, would you give them that same blessing that you gave Peter long ago? Help them to trust you and to be saved today. I love you, dear Lord. It's your name I pray. Amen.